I am among all men most blessed because I have the honor and the privilege to share the most important message known to humankind. That video said that just like you said, just like you said, you were arrested, you suffered, you died, but on the third day you rose again, and so shall we. So now our suffering, though we do suffer, has purpose. And though we will die, we can die without fear. Because the Lord Jesus has been raised back to life, and so shall we be. It it is an amazing message. It is a bold proclamation to go out into the world and to say, though you die, your body will come back to life if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the message of the Gospel. I've been blessed for many years as a pastor to preach this gospel. I've been blessed to walk with people through all kinds of sorrow. Before I came to Barry, I had one of those experiences where I walked with a man who was a deacon in our church and I loved him. I loved him deeply. It was late in summer and he called me and he said, Pastor Adam, I've been diagnosed with leukemia. Doctors say... I don't have long to live. And I said, well, Ed, how long? And he said, well, they say days, not years. So within a couple of months, he died. And that was just before I came here. It was a a beautiful and hard way to to leave my last church. I want to tell you one moment that was especially powerful for me is He called me one day. He he was just about to make the transition from the hospital to the hospice. And he said, I haven't haven't picked out a a, a burial plot. So I have no arrangements for my funeral. Him and I had talked about the spiritual side of things, but the practical stuff. He had nothing prepared. And he asked if I would come with him and his wife Marge and go to the funeral home and plan his funeral, pick out his casket, then go to the graveyard and pick out the plot where he would be buried. So I said, okay. I'll do that. And it was a hot, hot day late in the fall. And we went into the graveyard and we met with, with uh, the man who took charge of it. And he gave us several options. And it was, it was strange. It was almost far too business-like for me. Uh, so we went out and we walked and we stood in different places and Ed I said, well, I think this, this will be the place right here. So we went there and we stood over the place where he was going to be buried. And I mean, this is a very emotional time. And 10 days later, we buried him there. You know, while we were standing there, what do you say in a moment like that? I had my Bible with me, so I opened up to 1 Corinthians 15. And I read through the whole chapter we had done this before in the hospital. But after I put it down, if you don't know, 1 Corinthians 15 is all about resurrection. And I said, Ed, this is the place where the Lord Jesus Christ will raise your body from the dead. We're going to put your body in the ground. We're going to plant you like a seed. But from this place, the Lord Jesus will call your name and your body will rise. And he smiled and he gave me a big hug and his wife gave me a hug and then we cried 
And then 10 days later when we buried him there and I was going through 1 Thessalonians 4 that we grieve not as those without hope but with hope. So we grieve but we have hope in the resurrection. And Marge, a lot of people were crying obviously. It's a powerful, sad, grief-filled moment. But Marge was smiling. And my wife went over to her after and said, you know, Marge, how are you doing? You see that you seem to have joy. And, And she said to my wife, this is the spot. This is the spot where Ed will be raised from the dead. Do we have that kind of hope? I hope so. Because the gospel is a lot more than feeling better about our life. It's about the promise of future salvation. Salvation is past. Salvation is present. But ultimately, salvation is future. We will all die. Are you ready to die? If you know that your body will rise from the dead in glory physically, then you can be ready to die. And if you work backward from that moment all the way to this moment, your life can be radically different than everyone around who lives without the hope of bodily resurrection. So today, we, we, we think about the resurrection of Jesus, but we are so united to Him in His death that we are also united with Him in His resurrection from the dead. If you bury my body, my body will come out of the grave. No grave can hold me down. So with that hope and that introduction, let's pray and look at the Scriptures to see what God has to say about this glorious promise that is made possible in Jesus Christ. Oh God, I pray for us. I pray that You would give us such a rock-solid, deep, profound, committed conviction that we will rise from the dead. Because Lord Jesus, You died for our sins. You buried our sins in the ground with You. And as we died with You on the cross, so we rise with You in Your resurrection. We have already died. And though we must put aside these bodies for a time, death will have no claim over them, not forever. And You will raise them from the dead. Just as You have raised Jesus Christ, the firstfruits of all who will be raised with Him. God, help me to preach this Gospel. Help us to believe this Gospel. I especially pray for anyone here who says, that is foolishness. Lord, help them to see that unbelief is foolishness. For we are they who have a message that triumphs over the grave. We alone know what victory over death is. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who is defeated by death, that today You would give them victory over death. Give them faith. Faith in bodily resurrection and glory. I pray this in the name of the one who died and rose again, Jesus Christ, our King, our God. Amen. On Friday, we took a look at the death of Jesus Christ by going to the book of Isaiah. And I want to do that again. I want to take us back in time, 2,700 years ago from today, 700 years before Jesus was born, before He was crucified, before He was raised from the dead. 
And I want us to see, I mean, this gives me so much comfort and, and confidence in the gospel because God wrote it all down 700 years before it happened. As if to say, I'm about to do something that is unbelievable. But though you, so that you might believe, I'm going to write it down seven centuries before I do it. And then when I do it, read this ancient text and know for certain that I am a God who is more powerful than death. That I am a God who can bring the dead back to life. Read it and believe it so that though you die, you may live. So that's what we're going to do. Isaiah not only prophesies about the death of Jesus Christ, climactically in Isaiah 53, he also prophesies about the resurrection of Jesus Christ in Isaiah 25 to 27. And in those chapters, he also prophesies of our own resurrection from the dead. Now these are shocking chapters for a lot of reasons. The things that, that Isaiah says are, are so stunning that even today it's hard for us to embrace them. But they're especially stunning because they are located right in the middle of a long section on judgment, condemnation, uh, the, the, this, this promise, climactic promise of resurrection and glory is in the middle of a, a long section about sin. And death, and judgment, and condemnation. That's, that's on purpose. God loves the contrast between our sin, our wickedness, our evil, uh, our coming death, uh, the, the judgment that we deserve, and the glory of His grace. Say, in spite of all of that, I'm going to bring you back to life. I'm going to save you for eternal life. Let's very quickly review the, the big picture structure of the book of Isaiah. The more we do this, the more comfortable you will be with the book of Isaiah and the more you'll get out of the book of Isaiah when you read it. Because the book of Isaiah is the fifth gospel. This is the gospel of the Old Testament written by Isaiah but long before it was accomplished in Christ. There's four major sections in the book of Isaiah. The first one is chapters 1 through 6. This is the introduction of the book, and it's in these chapters that all the major themes of the book of Isaiah, all the major themes of the Bible, all the major themes of sin and death and judgment and salvation and grace and comfort and resurrection, they're all there in those first six chapters. Then we get to the second section of the book, chapters 7 through 39. And in these chapters, it's all about, as I said, judgment because of sin. Then we move on to the third major section, which is chapters 40 through 55. And this is those glorious gospel chapters of comfort and redemption and deliverance. A second exodus, just as God delivered His people from Egypt, so He would deliver them from exile in Babylon, which means right between chapters 39 and 40, you have the exile of, of God's people. Then the fourth major section is chapters 
56 through 66. And in those chapters, God talks about the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal glory promised to those who are redeemed. He also talks about final judgment for those who reject the promises of God. As we consider the book of Isaiah, as I said on Friday, the book of Isaiah is a micro-Bible. Everything in the Bible is contained in this one book. So if there's one book that you ought to read in the Bible, read the book of Isaiah, 66 chapters. And those 66 chapters will tell you everything you need to know about the 66 books of the Bible. You have the first 39 chapters, which are very much like the first 39 books of the Bible, our Old Testament. And although in the Old Testament there is grace, there's promises of comfort, redemption, salvation, uh, it's dominated by the failure of humanity, the sin of humanity, the coming judgment that we deserve. Promises of the new covenant, for sure. But the old covenant shows us where we fall short, shows us our need for a greater covenant, a new covenant, a, a deeper redemption, a greater salvation. And that, that's what those chapters are all about in the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah. And then we get to chapter 40 and everything changes. And, and chapter 40 to the end of the book sounds a lot like our New Testament. Those 27 chapters that finish the book of Isaiah are much like the, the last 27 books of our Bible, what we call the New Testament. And, and chapter 40 starts with this promise, comfort, comfort to my people. Judgment has come, but I will deliver you from this judgment. Then on Friday, we saw how God would send a servant. He would be a king who was gentle. He'd be a prophet who speaks the true words of God. He would be a scribe and a teacher of the law who came to fulfill the law and the prophets, not to do away with them. And he would be our great high priest. And not just our priest, but our sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who as our priest offers himself as a sacrifice, an offering for sin. It's all there in the book of Isaiah. And then this promise of a new heavens and a new earth. And a final hell for those who reject God. Isaiah is like the whole Bible. This morning we're going to look at that second major section. Uh, that section in chapters 7 through 39. Well, this is odd, isn't it? Because what have I said about these chapters? This is where the sin and the death and the judgment, the condemnation, the wickedness of humanity and the wickedness of, of Israel is captured. It's, it's where God says, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. So on Easter Sunday, why would we go to that dark, depressing reality of sin, death, and judgment? It's because right in the middle, as I said at the beginning, of these dark chapters, and they are dark, there's a promise of hope. To contextualize our passage today, though, in chapters 13 through 23, we have a series of judgment against the nations. And, and this is really hard reading for a lot of reasons. Uh, on the one reason, these nations don't mean much to us. But if they were 
Judgment prophecies against Canada and the United States and Mexico and England and Scotland and France and Russia and China, we, we might perk up a little bit. But there's still difficult chapters. Why? Because the dominant theme in, in every one of these oracles of judgment against every one of these nations is one of doom and despair and destruction. This nation will fall and that nation will fall. Sin and death and sin and death and judgment, condemnation, sin and death, judgment, condemnation. That nation falls. This nation falls. Fall, 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 fall. Verse after verse, chapter after chapter. I don't know if I could take much more of this. But then it gets worse. In chapter 24, God says, enough talking about all of these nations. The whole earth is going to fall. The whole earth is going to die. I'm going to judge everyone and every nation. Chapter 24 starts like this. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface, scatter its inhabitants. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare, for the windows of heaven are opened and the foundations of the earth tremble. That's an image of Noah's flood. The windows of the heavens open, pouring out water for judgment. And the foundations of the earth shake. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it. And it falls. It falls. It falls. Under the weight of its sin. That's the context for what we're going to look at. And I think it's important that I just mention that first and then just force you to linger here for a minute. If you have not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's all the hope I have for you. You can try and pretend that this isn't true. You can try to pretend that death isn't coming for you. You can try and pretend that, well, it'll all work out. I'm a good person. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that unless God does something radical, unless God breaks into our situation, it's just death. Condemnation. Forever. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it and it falls. And it will not rise again. Once God judges the world, the, the world under judgment does not rise again. 
So if you're putting your hope in some internal goodness, in some sort of ability to be good enough or to outrun death, death will catch up with you. We will all die. We are all going to die. Praise be to God that there's a Gospel. And so now we transition. That's the context though for Easter. If God does nothing, that's the only thing I can preach to you. But God did do something. Something marvelous. Something amazing. Something He didn't have to do. We don't deserve it. It's not as though we could demand it of Him. But because He loves us. Because He loves those whom He has created. Because He loves those whom He has foreknown. He he loves those whom He has predestined. He loves those whom He would call. He loves those of us whom He would justify. He says, I'm going to glorify you. And death will not be the last word for you. And so we transition now to chapter 25. And this is exactly why God did this. He, he takes us to the depths of darkness in the whole book of Isaiah. I would say there's no darker chapter in the Bible. This is as bad as it gets. But then he takes us to the height of the greatest glory in the very next chapter. And if the book of Isaiah really is a micro-Bible, this makes sense because the book of Isaiah, which talks about all of these things, it talks about the Gospel 700 years before Jesus came to accomplish it. And in the middle then, if chapters 1-39 through is a miniature Old Testament, in the middle of the miniature Old Testament, you have to have the promise of glory. And that's what we see here. So let's get to it. Isaiah 25, would you open your Bibles there? Isaiah chapter 25. It starts with a hymn of praise which seems very strange. Because we've just talked about the death and destruction for a long time in the book of Isaiah. But then, just like with a faint whisper, the prophet begins to praise God. Perhaps he sees what's coming in verse 6. Oh Lord, You are my God. And I will exalt You. I will praise Your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap. City in these chapters is a picture of the whole world. You've made the city, the earth, a heap. Fortified city, a ruin. And foreigners' palaces, a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. For strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless 
is put down. Just one summary phrase about these verses. Isaiah begins to praise because he sees the final judgment against the earth and he he gives us a metaphor of a city. The city is the earth which is ruled by wicked men. And in that city there are those who love the Lord. And he says, praise you that you've put down that city and you've become a refuge for those who love you. And then look at, this is, these are the verses I want us to really look at, verses 6-9. through nine. On this mountain, what mountain? Mount Zion, where Jerusalem is. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil, the shroud that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken and it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God! We've waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Sit in these verses with me for a minute. If you've read through Isaiah from, well, from chapter 1 to chapter 25, a lot of judgment, a lot of sin, and then all of a sudden, on this mountain, God Himself is going to gather people, gather us, if we're counted among the elect. He's going to gather us from all of the peoples. That is, not just from Israel, but He's going to gather to Jerusalem in Israel, on Zion's holy mountain. He's going to gather people from all of the nations. He's going to gather Israelites from the four corners of the earth. He's going to bring with them Gentiles like you and like me. And He's going to call us up onto this mountain. He's going to, he's going to tell us to sit down around His table. He's going to feast with us. And He's going to give us rich food. A feast of well-aged wine. A feast of food that is rich and full of marrow. Of aged wine well-refined. This is Isaiah's way of saying the best food. You know, the New Testament talks about this too. It's called the wedding supper of the Lamb. When God will call people to feast with the Lord Jesus Christ and it will be the consummation of our marriage to God through Christ. There's so much in that image to unpack that we don't have time for. But then, this would be enough, wouldn't it, to feast with God? To see Him face to face? To behold His glory? To be caught up into His splendor? Not to be pushed down and judged and condemned? uh, uh, No longer afraid of death? But then look at this. He says this is not just for a time, but as if for dessert. Verse 7, 
God says, I'm going to eat something at this banquet. I'm going to swallow up something. Well, what, what is that thing that God is going to eat in our presence? It's the covering that is cast over all peoples. It's the veil, the shroud that is spread over all nations. There's much that divides humanity in this world. We're always fighting with one another. We always have fought with one another ever since Cain and Abel. We find all kinds of ways to pit ourselves against one another, and yet, when you really take everything away, we have so much in common, and chief among the things that we have in common is that we're all sinners, and we'll all die. Whether you're from Canada, Saudi Arabia, Tanzania, Siberia, we all die. So the covering that's over all the peoples, the shroud that, that is laying over all the nations is the covering and the shroud of death. It hangs over us like burial clothes. And at this feast, God says, give me those burial clothes. Give me that death. I'm going to eat it. And it will be no more. Then the Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces. If you could bottle every tear, every heartache, every grief, since we rebelled against God, it would fill and overflow our oceans. And God says, come to me, my child those tears away from your face. Look at me, your father, and be glad because your sin's no more and your death is no more. That shroud that covered you is no more. Don't be afraid and don't cry. Look into my face of glory and be glad. I've taken away your reproach taken away your shame. You don't need to be ashamed of that sin anymore. It's gone. Then we will say on that day, behold, this is our God. This is not someone else's God. This is our God, the God of the Bible, the God who made Himself known in Jesus Christ. This is our God who loves us, who died for us, who swallowed up death for us. We've waited for Him that He might save us. And, and the waiting here is not just biding our time, but we've waited in expectation and hope that He would come, that the salvation would happen, that these things that were promised would actually come to pass, that, that, that we will be raised from the dead. See, the problem with so much of our expression of faith is that we don't think that we have to wait for anything, but we do. Uh, there's much grief yet in our lives. There's much grief yet in our future. So we wait and we endure. 
But the day will come when He will catch us up with Him on His holy mountain. And then we will say, let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. I want us now to just consider two questions. How will God do this? How will God swallow up death? Sounds nice. It's what I want. But how can He do it? Second question is, where will these people come from to feast with the Lord? It's not really clear, is it? Like I told you that we will be there. But how? Where do we come from? If we die, how will we be there with Him to feast? Is this just poetic? Is it metaphorical? Is it about your best life now? Or will there actually be a feast? Question number one, how will God swallow up death? God God doesn't say through Isaiah. He leaves it hanging in midair as if as an unresolved mystery. And through the pages of the Old Covenant, we never find out. So we have these promises of life and resurrection and hope and salvation crashing against the, the reality of sin and death and judgment. And through the Old Covenant, they crash together again and again and they don't resolve themselves. It remains a mystery hidden. A promise to believed and received and embraced, but not understood. But God does reveal the mystery to us. A mystery in biblical language is not something we cannot understand, but something that God has not revealed. And so in the Old Testament, God doesn't reveal how He's going to swallow up death. He just says, I'm going to do it. But then we get to 1 Corinthians 15. Why don't you flip there? 1 Corinthians 15. In near the end of the chapter in verse 51. In Isaiah 25, God says, I will swallow up death. I will wipe every tear from your face. But He doesn't tell us how. It remains a mystery. Now Paul, with Isaiah 25 in his mind, and I'll prove to you that that is the text that's in his mind. In verse 51, says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. What's Paul saying? There's a mystery where God said He was going to do something. He didn't tell us how. Now I'm going to tell you how. God has revealed it to me and I'm going to tell you how He's going to do it. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That is, we shall not all die. But we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then... That's a chronological marker. At that moment, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, 
death is swallowed up in victory. God says, I'm going to swallow up death. Well, how are you going to do that, God? Paul says, this is how. At the last trumpet, this is still in our future, when history has come to its end, a trumpet will sound from heaven and everyone who has died in Christ will be raised bodily from the dead. And those who are still alive who believe in Jesus will be transformed in an instant into their glorified bodies. What do you mean glorified bodies? Well, we don't really know. That is still a mystery yet to be revealed. But we do get a little bit. This body is perishable. This body grows old. This body gets sick. This body gets tired. This body gets hungry and thirsty. This body dies. But when the dead are raised, they'll be raised imperishable. And if we are alive at that moment, then this perishable body that becomes all those weak things will be made imperishable, will be made strong. Now notice what is not happening here, the throwing off of our bodies. The promise of the Gospel is resurrected bodies. These bodies are too weak for for eternal life, but the bodies that God will raise from the dead will be strong, imperishable. These bodies are mortal, but the bodies that will be raised from the dead will be raised immortal. Death is impossible in those bodies. Now this has already happened for the Lord Jesus Christ. Though He is fully God, He came in a perishable body. He came in in, in a, a mortal body that could be killed and we killed Him. But on Easter Sunday, we celebrate that God has even now begun to swallow up death because He brought the Lord Jesus Christ back to life. And this is how it works. The devil and sin and death, if we could personify the latter two, said, aha, the greatest trophy of them all, God Himself in a mortal, perishable body. We will swallow Him up and then we will have defeated God. That's the twisted thinking of sin, death, and the devil. So God, who baited the devil in this way, says, fine. And He gave Himself up in human form in the person of His Son. But death could not digest the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus is life. He is the author of life. He is the creator of the universe. In Him is life. There always has been life in Him. And death cannot swallow life like that. And so, the Lord would not allow His Holy One to see corruption. And on the third day, death gave Him back. And Jesus triumphed over death by coming back to life. And we were united somehow with Him on the cross in His death. So just as we die with Him, so we will rise with Him. And death has no claim over this body because it belongs to Christ. Do you belong to Christ? If you belong to Christ, death has no possession of your body. Oh, we will lay aside our body for a time. 
But the, it's so important that our gospel doesn't end with getting rid of our bodies and going up into heaven. That's not the end of the gospel. The end of the gospel is that death cannot hold on to our bodies because that would be a trophy for death. God is not giving anything over to death. God will take back whatever death tries to steal for those who are in Christ. And we will rise. And what Paul says here is when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then it's at that moment when we are raised from the dead physically, super physically, bodily, in glory, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will put your body in the ground on the day that you die, and we will grieve. But we will grieve with hope. Because death has not claimed anything. Not, not really. You've transitioned to a new and greater way of living in the presence of the Lord for a time. And when the last trumpet sounds, that body that we put in the ground will come back to life. So you have a choice. Either die and face the final judgment with no hope or put yourself in Christ. That's it. And if you're in Christ, you will rise. Second question, which we've almost answered it. Where do these people come from to feast with the Lord? What's the answer? From the grave. What an awesome God we have. He wants to throw a party. Who's he inviting? All the dead people. Well, that's a problem, so he's got to make us alive. And Isaiah doesn't leave that a mystery. If you just go back to Isaiah and flip to Isaiah chapter 26, in chapter 26, verse 17. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of You, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. We've accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. I want to start there because if you're not in Christ, you can try all you want to give birth to eternal life, but you will just give birth to wind. You cannot give birth to your own resurrection. You cannot deliver yourself. You cannot save yourself. You cannot outrun death. If you try, you will be like a woman giving birth, but when she comes to give birth, she finds there's no baby. There's no life. There's just wind. There's nothing. But death But 
then look at verse 19. So when we try to save ourselves, there's nothing. But when we put our faith in God, verse 19, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. We can't give birth to ourselves, but the earth will give birth to us. When that final trumpet calls from heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ calls your name, your body will be birthed by the dust of the earth in which you are buried. That's awesome. Could it be any clearer? I mean, people debate, well, will our bodies actually come back to life? Verse 19, their bodies shall rise. It's no clearer. You can't get any clearer. God, God is saying, your body will rise. It's a bodily resurrection from the dead. You who dwell in the dust, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. From dust you came, to dust you shall go. But from the dust to which you have come and to which you have gone, from that dust you shall rise your body and your body won't be perishable and weak and old it'll be strong and imperishable and immortal in the likeness of jesus christ who even now is a man in glory the earth will give birth to the dead so who wants to be raised from the dead I, I cannot believe, but it's true. There are many who do not want this. Or if they do, they think that, that we are filled of, with all kinds of fancy fantasies and foolishness. That's why I love back in 25, it says, uh, the Lord has spoken. How do we know this is going to happen? Well, when God spoke, let there be light, there was light. He spoke the universe into existence in six days. Do you think He can't raise us from the dead when He speaks it so? So do you want to be raised from the dead or not? This week I've been thinking a lot about Ed. He wanted to be raised from the dead. And he died knowing that that wasn't the end. We put his body in the ground, but one day the last trumpet will sound from heaven and the body that I officiated and buried and put in the ground will rise. So if you don't want to rise from the dead, if you want to stay dead, if you want to be condemned, then don't believe. But if you want a God who is greater than death and a hope and a future, for eternal life, then put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way. Death is like a dragon. It's coming for us all. You can't outrun it. But God has swallowed up death by sending the Lord Jesus Christ to die and be raised from the dead. And if we hide ourselves in Him, then we too shall rise to live with Him forever. I promise I promise it to you. Resurrection and eternal life. And then we will feast 
with God Himself. And He will dry the tears from our faces. And all of the pain and the suffering and the agony and the grief that we've endured will be gone. And we will live with Him forever. Do you believe this? You know what I love about the gospel? It's impossible to believe unless God helps us to believe it. I believe it with all my heart. And I want you to believe it with all your heart. And when we go out from here sharing the gospel, let bodily resurrection flow from our mouths to give people hope. Death need not be the end. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for Easter Sunday. You raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. We are in Christ. We died with Him and we will rise with Him. Bodies glorified in Christ. God, please hasten the day when you sound the trumpet from heaven that all our grief and sorrow and suffering might come to an end and we with all the saints might feast with you on your holy mountain and we will sing on that day, this is our God. We have waited for him. This is the Lord. Oh, how we have waited for this salvation. In Christ's name, we wait. Amen.